0: your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray,
1: and I'm Glenn Langenberg.
0: Well, Glenn, uh, we are here next to each other. I sound a little echoey because uh, we're kind of in a corner off to the side of the convention center in Omaha, Nebraska. And so far, seen a lot of people I haven't seen for you know a year or two. Uh, so that's that's definitely a good thing. <laughs> and people are walking by as we speak right now. <laughs> well, hello, hello, hello.
1: So, anyway, good to see you
0: here in person, Glenn.
1: Yeah, same here, Eric. Uh, Always a pleasure here to be at the IAI Annual Educational Conference and another end of a year for the W. How many years now is that? Nine years we've had
0: this. It's crazy. It is crazy. So, we're going to get to an interview that we recorded a couple months or or more ago, but we didn't uh, record the intro for it uh, when we did the interview, so that's why we're doing this here now while we're uh, with each other at the conference.
1: Uh, It's a peek behind the curtain to see how these, sausages made. exactly
0: so before we get into that we've got a little business to take care of first off the dad joke so uh, glenn um uh, do you ever wonder why yoda agreed to train luke skywalker no i didn't it it, it made the dagobah faster
1: <laughs> all right i like that one that's, that's that's pretty good so i don't have a dad joke for you i've got two like silly fortune cookie type oh of stuff, okay right a little, a little fortune cookie wisdom uh one of the ones is i'm sure you've heard that honesty is the best policy Oh, well, of course yes well that would make dishonesty the second best policy <laughs> which isn't too bad <laughs> and the other one is uh technically we're all half centaurs uh, oh yeah the top half Right. If yeah. you think about it, yeah. we're, we're yeah. all all half centaur.
0: <laughs> well, also here before we get jump into the interview, big thanks to some of our recent uh, patrons that have joined us on patreon.com slash Loop podcast. Those include uh, Brianna, Danielle, Joshua, Jen, and Lily. Thank you guys for uh, your contribution. And it's you know, between the equipment that we're recording on here, hosting the site, uh, hosting all the recordings. It, it helps out a lot. And we really appreciate you guys.
1: Yeah, and listeners probably would not know this, but one of the wonderful things is we had a little bit of surplus left over from equipment that we bought. We wanted to do something and kind of give it back to the IAI and the membership, so we ended up getting a booth this year at the IAI conference, which is really cool. And uh, Superfan Becca Coutant is uh, here uh, running the booth for us, and she's going to be doing man-on-the-street stuff, getting interviews and clips and talking to people and selling double-loop swag and just kind of representing the W podcast here at the IAI. And so we're really excited about that opportunity, which we could only have done thanks to the listeners. Absolutely.
0: So if you're, for the people here, they'll see a bunch of this merchandise at at the booth here this week. Uh, But if you're not able to make it to the IAI, or for some reason, you just didn't find our booth in the hall this week, go to our website, Wpodcast.com. We've got some new t-shirt designs that are uh, really exciting and really funny and uh, got a lot of good feedback on those new designs. So there
1: might be something there that you guys uh, will like and want to order yourself. Yeah, great. And again, thanks to the listeners and the, the patrons over the years who have been sponsoring us. We really do appreciate it. And it's what keeps the, uh, the ship afloat here. Absolutely. So
0: that, I guess it's time to go over to
1: our interview with uh, Henry Swafford. Yes.
0: All right. Well, we're very excited today to have a, a guest on the show. This is a, a returning guest from uh, a couple of years ago. Now, I think was the last time we had uh, Henry on. Uh, Henry Swafford, welcome to welcome back to the Double Loop Podcast. Well, thank you. I'm I'm happy to be here. Well, Henry, I think since the last time we had you on, I can't remember exactly how the timing worked out, but you you you, um, well, you already went through our whole story of how'd you land in fingerprints, but uh, I think you've, you've moved on and have a different position now than you had during our last interview. Can you, uh, you know, give uh, the audience here an update as to uh, where you currently work and, and uh, how you're still in the, uh, the forensic uh, latent print field?
2: Sure. I believe when we last spoke, it might have been 2018 timeframe, but I had in late 2018, I transitioned from my role as the chief of the latent print branch at the U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Laboratory and took on a new challenge that was uh, presented to me up in Washington, D.C. So I I now work as a um, supervisory program manager overseeing a team of program managers that work on managing technology development programs in support of uh, challenging problems faced by the intelligence community. So, Utel is a nonprofit, non-government entity that was started in 1999, um, essentially as a spinout from the CIA. At the time, uh, we work very closely with CIA, but over the years, we broadened our scope and support all of the major federal agencies within the uh, U.S. intelligence agency. And essentially, we work closely with these agencies, understanding what are their challenging problems. We then break those problems down into, they're often described to us in in, uh, lacking or uh, capabilities. We then take that capability, break it down into a technology architecture understanding what are the individual component technologies that we believe when integrated together would yield such a capability. We then with that context in mind, work closely with the um, uh, startup uh, technology ecosystem looking at what are some companies developing or intend to develop um, technologies for whatever the commercial vertical might be, but that we believe could have some applicability to solving some of the challenging problems within the intelligence agency. So that might be a direct use case that the the company intends to use commercially, or might be some adaptations that we would work with the company to apply. And then all we're doing essentially is helping accelerate the development and commercialization of that technology. So it's commercially available for both the government to, to leverage as well as the broader, commercial industry as well. I've been there since September 2018 and continue to be there today working on a number of different challenging uh, issues. But in the outside of that context, when I did transition from my role, of course, my my heart is in forensic science and the criminal justice system. And I still stay very much involved in a private capacity through HGS Consulting. So I'll support prosecutors, defense attorneys on helping understand fingerprint cases when they're faced with them. That's also the, the entity that I use when I'm doing anything related to fingerprints, um, whether that's uh, engaging in consulting cases or uh, in my capacity as still as a chair of the OSAC Fritch and Rich Subcommittee and so forth.
1: So if I understand your position correctly at in you're basically Q from James Bond, right? That, that's your whole unit <laughs> is developing Q technology,
2: right? I believe the history of the name was inserted in there as a fun little Hollywood joke. Correct.
1: In QTEL, okay, I got gotcha. you. Fantastic. Well, I am looking for your motorized car that can shoot bullets and go underwater, <laughs> and, and and obviously you're working with Aston Martin. I mean, there's no doubt that I mean they're one of your big sponsors, right?
2: There are a number of very cool uh, Hollywood-like technologies, but there is also a whole lot of uh, more boring ones that are also very critical for the for <laughs> <Sure>. the government. <laughs> sure,
1: and and um, you're a, also a student at the University of Lausanne right now, right too.
2: Indeed. That was another thing. When I transitioned from my role in 2018 at the Army Crime Lab, I was able to go much more aggressively in pursuit of my doctoral dissertation. And so I'm pleased to say I have completed the thesis, submitted that thesis, and I'm now anxiously awaiting the feedback of the committee.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. I I, I didn't know that. Uh, That's great news, Henry. Congratulations. It's a huge milestone. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, when when you got the thesis back, I assume that uh, Christoph went through it, were you dismayed that there was basically writing on
2: every page
1: and realized that you had <laughs> maybe a thousand comments to address?
2: I was not dismayed about that, and that is, is indeed the, the case that I had, but I'm f- <laughs> uh, very thankful to Christoph that he did his writing in electronic form using track changes as opposed to pen and ink, uh, I okay. will say. <laughs> Mine
1: was pen and ink. <laughs> <laughs> and and I will tell you that every comment that was made by either Christoph or Pierre was, was was correct. I mean, every one that they said, I went, "This is right. This will make it better. This makes it yep. better. This makes it yep. better." Yeah, it's a it's a tough process, but congratulations. I appreciate it. No, that's that's great news. And and lastly, you're not even in the United States right now, are
2: you? No, I'm actually I'm, I'm in Stockholm. So I came out here yesterday, and I'm here for the. European Academy of Forensic Sciences meeting. So I'm very, very honored to have been invited to give a, um, uh, one of several keynotes within the tracks of the Impression and Pattern Evidence uh, domain. So I'm looking forward to, uh, within a 30-minute time frame, giving a highlight of a 400-page thesis. So we'll see how effective that is. <laughs>
1: cool. All right. Well, uh, we won't uh, take up too much of your time today, but we want to talk about a paper that you recently published with Christophe Champeau. Was published in Forensic Science International Synergy. It was published in 2022, and uh, readers, we can make a link available and, and make it available to you guys if you don't uh, have it or have access to it. Uh, but the title of the paper is "Probabilistic Reporting and Algorithms in Forensic Science: Stakeholder Perspectives within the American Criminal Justice System" by Henry Swafford and Christoph Shampo. And just a quick synopsis of the paper. You guys interviewed a number of stakeholders in the criminal justice system, three lab managers, three prosecutors, three defense attorneys, three judges, and basically three academic slash scholars, and asked them a series of questions on different topics related to probabilities, models, algorithms, et cetera. And the, the five categories were generally, what do you think about computational algorithms and their use in the criminal justice system? How to uh, begin to trust them? You know, what do we need to do so that you, as stakeholders, can trust them or have some faith in these systems? Particularly when it comes to using them, implementing and their admissibility in the courtroom. How do we regulate these systems? And lastly, how do you implement them, use them in court, or present them to jurors? What are the you know the the landmines that one might have to deal with and circumvent to? have this evidence presented to jurors and have them understand it. So with that, I'm curious right out of the gate, how did you come up with this idea? Why uh, why this paper and why this approach, this interview approach to probabilistic reporting?
2: Sure. So so first of all, very good synopsis of the paper. The, the impetus behind this is that, in my view, we have spent a lot of time and a lot of resources on proposing different computational methods for the forensic sciences and pattern evidence included. Yet what we find ourselves with, with none of them have actually been implemented operationally and widely adopted across the community. Mm -hmm. And so this this has caused me to take a step back and ask ourselves why, what is it that we're missing here? And, you know, several years ago, I would have said, I think it's a limited limitations of the technology and the performance of those systems. Mm -hmm. But if you ask me that same question today, I think it's actually a lacking strategy. And I don't think we have full grasp around how we can actually implement these systems operationally. And And in doing so, we have to be very considerate and respectful of what are the different perspectives of the different stakeholders within the criminal justice system. Now, The reason I had to caveat this is within the American criminal justice system is because we're going to have different implications of different stakeholders in different uh, criminal justice systems. As you know, we work in an adversarial environment in the United States In different European countries, for example. We work they work in an inquisitory uh, criminal justice system and those could have different implications there.
1: That has actually been one of my experiences dealing with some of the professors at Lausanne. I mean, some of the very famous, knowledgeable, you know, Franco Taroni and Alex Biederman. Some of my discussions with them, I appreciate often their theory and their approach, and I know that they have very strong views on some of these things, but I often come back to, man, I don't know if that's really applicable to the American criminal justice system. I don't think you guys realize some of the things are happening in a juror system where theoretically this may be true, and you're on to a great idea, but I don't think you understand the practical issues that we are actually dealing with in the American criminal justice system.
2: That's exactly right. And the other dimension there is we can look at admissibility of these systems um, in terms of a rule of evidence perspective. But in the American criminal justice system, we also have to look at the admissibility of the systems from a constitutional perspective as well, which may not be as applicable in other countries. Yeah, good point. So, it, I mean, what what I've realized is that, or what I believed, I uh, should say, is that there is there's a missing factor here. Is that the in my viewpoint, I don't think the technology is the is the true limiting factor. That there's something else at play. And as as many some of the readers may know, that I was able to work with Simon Cole and Valerie King at the use at the University of California, Irvine, on a, a formal structured survey of practitioners on their viewpoints of probabilistic reporting. Mm-hmm. And that was quite quite an experience and quite enlightening in terms of what are the general perspectives of forensic practitioners, particularly uh, uh, Friction Ridge examiners, on the idea of probabilistic models, but really um, statistical concepts in general and introducing them in, in terms of, of, of expressing our conclusions. Responses from that survey not only addressed, provided perspectives in terms of statistical reporting, but also bled into the perspectives and their willingness to accept probabilistic models. And so in looking at this picture holistically, we, you know, Christoph and I decided to really effectively look at this issue, we have to consider not only the practitioner perspective, but also what are the general perspective across all stakeholders? And so that's the impetus behind this paper. Is now that we have captured the perspective of practitioners, we need to understand what are the roles and responsibilities and how are the different other stakeholders looking at these issues primarily and extending it beyond just prosecutors and defense attorneys, which we can surmise in the adversarial system would be on opposite sides of the fence here. But then what are the just perspectives of some judges? What are the perspectives of academic scholars in these issues? What are the perspectives of laboratory managers? And so those those six practitioners plus the five we interviewed in this paper, in my view, represent the, the majority of the key stakeholders within the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm.
0: I think uh, maybe start off by looking at some of the responses from uh, from these different stakeholders and and there's lots of quotes throughout this paper where you you just transcribed their their responses to uh, to many of these questions and then maybe then we go into just kind of you know summary or, or conclusions from all of that uh, but what were some of the most um, surprising or interesting uh, responses that you got back from you know specific uh, people that you interviewed
2: Sure. So I will say that at the outset, the intent behind this paper was not actually to provide recommendations for the path forward. The intent behind this paper was to capture the perspectives of the different stakeholders Mm -hmm. so that as we consider moving forward in this respect, we can do so in a more informed manner. So in this particular paper, you won't actually see this is what we need to do, not this, do this. There's another paper that we have published that was largely based on a literature review of, of these very issues as well. And that actually did offer a, a proposed path forward. It was a bit out of order there um, in hindsight, but that did offer a path forward. And we recognized that in this paper. But then even in, we wanted to expand upon, upon just what did we capture from the perspectives in the literature review and actually talk to some of these people as well. So this paper, keeping in mind that we provide a lot of quotes here because I think you're. It's, We've got some rich responses, and I think it's really critical to hear it in the participants' own words to set the foundation for having this conversation moving forward. I totally
1: agree. When I read these statements, uh, I'll I'll jump in a little bit later with, with some other examples, but they are echoing exactly what I'm hearing from my conversations with these stakeholders as I'm trying to present and currently using the OSAC effectively the probabilistic likelihood ratio qualified scale in my reports currently, as well as using a statistical model. I'm running into everything that this paper captured in your comments from prosecutors and defense attorneys, as well as other fingerprint examiners. But it, it was very resonating to me when I read those comments. Very
2: good. And that's kind of, that's, that's a hope with presenting this, that one doesn't have to undergo a five or 10 year direct experience before they can form their own, that this paper will serve as a foundation for us to continue this conversation for folks that might not have had that direct experience. But going back to your question, Eric, you know, what are some of the most surprising responses? I will say that at the end of the day, this paper is very long. It's very long because of the quotes. <laughs> and, uh, and even in the, the length of this paper that was in published form, there's still a number of um, more elaborate quotes that we thought was important to, to make it publicly available that we published as a supplemental materials to this paper that can be found online unfortunately with forensic science international synergy being an open access that all of that is is available without any need to purchase the article and so forth ultimately i think what was most surprising to me is that i went into this study believing that respondents were going to claim that probabilistic reporting was the only path forward and instead what i received was that probabilistic reporting is with with the exception of prosecutors probabilistic reporting is a possible path forward but there are several concerns around it and in terms of how will it be interpreted how will it will be how how will it will be conveyed by practitioners how it will be interpreted by fact finders and instead what was most surprising is that I thought defense attorneys were going to be the, the biggest champions for probabilistic reporting, and indeed they were not necessarily. Right. The defense attorneys were most concerned about ensuring that however we express our conclusions, uh, us being practitioners, just being very clear and forthright and upfront about what are the limitations to how those conclusions can be interpreted. And they're very big on on black box error rate testing and so forth. I think that was my biggest my biggest kind of surprise. The other thing that was intriguing to me, I would, I'm not sure I would call it surprising or whatnot, but more intriguing to me is when talking with the, with the judges, they were actually quite elaborate on, and on openly criticizing other decisions made by other judges. And one of the biggest pieces that caused me to take a step back and 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 in with interest was when one judge participant elaborated on from the perspective of a judge that judges are actually under a lot of pressures, including political pressures and so forth, that might creep into some of their ruling. And this, this judge participant pointed to the Lara Plaza case with Judge Pollock right. as an example where, where this participant believed there were some, some external pressures that went into the second Lara Plaza ruling. Uh, and that was quite interesting to hear that from this judge's perspective, who's who's been been on the bench as a federal judge for for more than two decades and, and experienced it firsthand.
0: I think you even further described how you know Daubert challenges on the civil side succeed frequently, and but Daubert challenges on the criminal side succeed almost never. Exactly. Uh, you know, and and then what type of uh, you know political pressure uh, leads to to that disparity? Exactly.
2: And, and, and I don't have a solution to it. I wouldn't even pretend no. to offer a solution, but it's just very interesting when you take a step back and look at this from the holistic picture of the entire system.
0: Yeah. I, I think I should also share your surprise about the response from, from the defense attorneys re- regarding that probabilistic language specifically, right? The the prosecutors, you know, when, when they say basically the, the categorical statements are fine, uh, that wasn't surprising. Nor the defense attorney saying that the, the categorical statements uh, they view them as problematic. You know, then when asked about you know, probabilistic language for uh, for conclusions, having you know a whole lot of caveats. Well, we, maybe we can do it if this and if this or if this, or just you know, calling raising the potential that that they be really problematic.
2: Exactly. And the other interesting thing I would say is that from the U.S., for me individually, from the U.S. perspective, looking at NSFI and the European approach, it seems as an outsider, it seems that the Europeans generally are supportive of probabilistic reporting, specifically in the framework of a likelihood ratio, and are more willing to, to express numerical quantities based on personal judgment. Whereas from the American stakeholders, the responses seem to be universally against that on the American side, that if you have a numerical quantity, they expect that there is some sort of validated empirical foundation to that, that is coming from some sort of validated probabilistic model and not based only on human judgment. Whereas to the alternative, they were amenable. To probabilistic reporting without a numerical, specific numerical reference, but in qualitative terms, much like what has been put forward by the, the, the OSAC Friction Ridge Subcommittee and its proposed standard for friction ridge examination conclusions. That was um, accept, generally acceptable across, from what my, I interpreted across the different stakeholders. But once you put a number on it, they expect that there be some sort of data behind that number.
1: Hey, Henry, did you ask them any questions about like a hybrid model, which is effectively you know, what I'm doing now? where i run something through a model i get a number but i I then take that number as part of my decision making process and then decide which category of the osac scale to report so I, i use my training my experience my traditional subjective approach to kind of arrive at a general category let's say strong support and i run it through the model and see if that basically mimics or mirrors supports that decision of strong support Did you ask them any questions about that kind of thing where ultimately the conclusion is more qualitative, categorical, but yet there are data and statistics behind that reasoning and decision? How did they feel about
2: something like that? So we did not ask a specific question at the outset across all stakeholders like that however based on the, some of the response the nature of the semi-structured interview methodology for this research allowed us to kind of ask some ad hoc questions even though we had a set of questions from the from the outset and in a, in a number of practi- in a number of participants I I did solicit some of their perspectives on that and that seemed to be an integrated solution where there is still human expertise and a probabilistic model somehow cohabitating together seem to be amenable. What was clear, however, is that if a probabilistic model was run and there is a numerical output, if that numerical output is not explicitly reported, that it at least be very clear and discoverable so it can be referenced. So I think the hybrid model, ultimately me personally, I think the hybrid model is the most effective path forward towards the introduction of probabilistic systems, and then the other paper um, entitled Implementation of Algorithms and Pattern and Impression Evidence, a Responsible and Practical Roadmap that preceded this paper just uh, uh, by a few months. We offer a formal taxonomy that lays out the different ways in which that hybrid model could operate, where human expertise and probabilistic systems could cohabitate together.
0: Yeah, and I think the, the laboratory managers were the group that that most talked about that kind of hybrid or reporting kind of model.
2: Yes. Yeah. And I, and that was, that was not surprising to me, but it seemed it, it makes sense. And I, you know, having looked at these, having served as a forensic practitioner all of these years, I personally think that also is the best, is is the most effective solution that human, human experts have a capacity to look at and analyze evidence in a way that, that models are just not going to be able to do. And that's okay, but that is not sufficient for us to completely throw away the model only in lieu of human judgment. I think there's a, we're going to be more effective as an integrated solution where we have this hybrid approach where the human expertise has a role to play, but so does the probabilistic system as well. We just need to work out you know, who is responsible for what aspects of the evaluation and evidence and how that will be reported. And those details are subtle, but very important in, in, the, in moving forward in this conversation.
1: One of the things that resonated with me on the defense side of it, having worked with defense attorneys on on these issues, was the comment how everyone else is basically going to struggle with this. Their their view seemed to be, if I'm summarizing it, their view seemed to be they don't know how jurors are going to handle this. The likely, jurors will not be able to properly evaluate something if it is more probabilistic or more of a qualified conclusion, something like moderate support or strong support for same source. And the one thing that I've heard continuously from their concerns is how prosecutors will abuse such evidence. And then as soon as that person leaves the courtroom, who's testified to something like that, the prosecutor during closing arguments is most definitely going to present this as, well, you heard the, you know, the examiner himself say that, it's probably that person, and even though they, that those words never came out of uh, out of their mouth, they're going to present it much stronger during closing arguments. Did that resonate with what you heard from defense attorneys?
2: That did resonate, indeed. And I know that's a that is a significant concern that I have heard from some practitioners and from some laboratory managers, just anecdotally. Mm-hmm. However, you know, an interesting thing is that. On the flip side of that is that the defense attorneys and even some the, the judges recognize, I would call it more they recognize the, that this will be challenging to convey to lay fact finders, but not insurmountable. And they said, but what's the alternative to continue saying something that as a categorical expression of a conclusion without any formal recognition of the uncertainty. That is an explicit, as they said it to me, as an explicit overstatement of what can be scientifically supported. So yes, there will be challenges. Yes, it will be confusing, but that's not enough to continue to stick with the status quo. And so that, that also kind of resonated with me as well, that we're stuck in a kind of a rock and a hard place, and we need to think about how we can move forward and do our best we can to convey the information in the way it should be conveyed such that it's interpreted as we intend, but also just know there's going to be challenges ahead of us. And sticking with the status quo seems to be not acceptable uh, across all stakeholders.
1: Yeah. The science demands that we move forward, but what I got from the defense perspective is the system will continue to be rigged against them. That that Effectively, even though we, we can move in the right direction scientifically, this is still going to continue to... Uh, be an uphill battle for
2: them. Cor- cor- correct.
1: And I think you, you also heard it from the other side, right, of
0: concern that that the defense attorneys would would misuse the probabilistic language to, to mislead or confuse Good point. Uh, uh, the jury.
2: Indeed. It was very much, if I had to put on a spectrum of where the, in generally speaking, where the perspectives were across all five stakeholders, absolutely we have prosecutors on one end of the spectrum and defense attorneys on the opposite end of the spectrum. But then what's interesting is then I think next to from the prosecutors, then we have laboratory managers and practitioners kind of neck and neck. In fact, I would say we have prosecutors, practitioners, laboratory managers, and then we have the true middle. And then we have either right on the middle or just on the edge toward the defense side, I think we have judges. And then we have academic scholars. And then, of course, the defense on the opposite end of the spectrum here. Yeah
1: that also resonated with me i i was doing a moot court once with the osac conclusion scale and there was a prosecutor who was playing the defense attorney and at some point he asked me the question and remember he's a prosecutor he asked me, to, but was pretending to be a defense attorney, so he was cross-examining me on the OSAC scale. At some point, he asked me, well, Dr. Langenberg, it sounds like uh, by saying strong support, you're introducing reasonable doubt into your conclusion. And as soon as I read your paper and I saw that reasonable doubt coming up from prosecutors, I was like, oh, this is great, because that was exactly his concern. And you know, my response was, well, sir, reasonable doubt is a legal term that you guys use i think what you're referring to is that there is some uncertainty if this person is the source of the impression and he broke character you know during the moot court he's like well yeah that's exactly what i'm talking about it it sounds like you're uncertain i said no there is some uncertainty around this there is a chance there's a reasonable chance that someone else out there could share these characteristics and he just he broke character completely and he's like Glenn, I would never use this evidence if I was a prosecutor because it's just reasonable doubt. And I said, I don't care if you use the evidence or not. In fact, that's fewer subpoenas for me, and I don't have to go and testify, but I will still write the report, and you decide if you want to use this evidence. And then I, I asked him, do you not present DNA evidence then? Do you not present you know, mixture evidence? And he's like, no, no, of course I present DNA evidence. And I said, why is it any different then? He said, well, it's different because it's DNA and they have numbers. And I went, okay, well, there we go. Now now I completely understand this idea that you're not comfortable presenting something less than certain unless it has the patina of DNA and the mystique of DNA with a quantitative statistic, but otherwise everything else is just reasonable doubt to you. When I read your paper, Henry, that's exactly what I read in those prosecution statements.
2: That yes that's very much they were very comfortable with probabilistic reporting and in the context of DNA because they have the numbers there but they just I think the issue that the prosecutors had is they didn't know how to envision a world and for what they're so used to in the pattern impression evidence disciplines yep is how what would it look like and I think that's the challenge that they were facing which was causing them to be very much more reserved on it to be fair I think you know in and some of them you know although one of the one Prosecutor participant, for example, said, "What is the strength of categorical reporting as the certainty it conveys?" Which was an interesting kind of response there. But I, I I understand it from their perspective. They need certainty if they intend to try a case. They personally believe and they are personally certain that the person is guilty. And their job at that point is to convince twelve jurors of that of that perspective. You know, another thing on the on the topic of reasonable doubt that that made me take a step back and chuckle a little bit is because one of the questions. Was generated from the structured survey we did of forensic practitioners, and one of the questions from that structured survey that I did with Simon and and Simon Cole and Valerie King is whether look just soliciting what are the major barriers and concerns that that fingerprint practitioners had. On probabilistic reporting in general. And we asked a number of questions and asked the participants on a liker scale to rate, you know, how how much they agreed or disagreed with this, you know, these different statements. And one of the statements was that there is a fear, I'm paraphrasing here, that there is a fear that defense attorneys will use the probabilistic reporting to introduce reasonable doubt. And in that survey, we had approximately 80% of, of the fingerprint practitioners respond that that is indeed a concern that they had, mm. um, which was interesting to me for a number of different reasons. But what we did in this semi-structured interview, this paper, is we presented that that data to all of the different stakeholders and asked their opinion. And were, the reason I chuckled is because one participant said, actually more than one participant, one judge and one academic scholar said, I don't like that question because you're telling me it's a fear that it's going to introduce reasonable doubt. Well, heck, if there is a reason to doubt, don't you think we need to know about it in the criminal justice system? And I chuckled and I said, you are absolutely right. That is a terribly worded question because if it is reason to doubt, we should doubt it.
1: Yeah. That, that, that's great I, I what this all sums up to me is that we have always had i mean it, it goes all the way back to our training of zero error rate and other stuff related to that we've always had a very bad relationship with how to express uncertainty and that we have been trained not to have uncertainty and that's what we're struggling with now is a way to express uncertainty and these prosecutors who are basically are unfamiliar with that in the pattern evidence field are suddenly now struggling with how do i present less than certain fingerprint evidence i've never had to deal with that before it's just our we're struggling with this relationship with expressing uncertainty you're right well i think it's it's a
0: um, it's this misunderstanding that that all uncertainty is the same, right? That, right. That any level of uncertainty equals reasonable doubt, exactly. and that that shouldn't be the case. That's not what reasonable doubt means. Uncertainty is a is a spectrum, and you can there can be disagreements on where reasonable doubt you know falls on that spectrum, uh, but it, it shouldn't be at the you know the ultimate six sigma kind of end of of uh,
1: uh, of uncertainty. Yeah, and it, and it's one piece of evidence in the in the totality. Even if there's a lot of uncertainty on one piece of evidence, that doesn't mean that it introduces reasonable doubt into the entire case. You can still Correct. you can still have one piece that maybe doesn't fit in the puzzle.
2: Correct. And another perspective that was offered, and and I, you know, in over the last several years, as I've been, in, you know subjecting myself to this this broader conversation and this broader issue, I've come to form this same opinion. But one thing that was presented to me by one of the academic scholars is that presenting uncertainty strengthens your case, because now you have for, formally characterized the limits of what you can say and what you cannot necessarily say. But just throwing some, a conclusion out there that is unequivocally known to be that you cannot empirically support this if you are challenged to do so actually makes it weaker, mm-hmm. even though it might sound more certain. By characterizing your conclusion and bounding it with some level of uncertainty, you're actually strengthening the argument in your case. That was presented from a from a, what I've considered to be a well-accomplished scientific perspective. Now, Keeping in mind, of course, the scientific stakeholders in this—I I should call them the academic stakeholders in this paper—have um, not necessarily had direct experience as a practitioner in the legal system. So it was interesting to hear that perspective. But we have to look at it, the issue, of course, by balancing all the perspectives from from all the different stakeholders there. But that was interesting to hear it from that side of the equation. Yeah,
0: if you make your conclusion rigid,
1: it's uh, it's easier to shatter it. Yeah, exactly. Great analogy. Henry, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to your own experiences at the Army Crime Lab, having introduced this evidence into court-martial court systems, legal system. Did any of the things that you experienced in the paper, any of the statements or perspectives, did that resonate with actual things that you saw with its implementation in the court-martial
2: system? We anticipated that we were going to get a lot of challenges, and in fact, we did not get as many challenges as the, the, cha- the level of challenge that we expected. Um, but we also had the luxury in the court-martial system that before we rolled this out, we were very aggressive at working across pro- prosecutors and stakeholders within the military justice system mm. to convey this is, what's, this is why we're rolling this out, this is how we're rolling it out, and then... Once we've rolled it out, we work closely with the with the, um, the, the the attorneys across on both sides. So, and it seemed to it seemed to be resonate on both sides of the equation. There, they actually, and then that was in, in terms of a two thousand fifteen switch to a qualitative expression of a probabilistic conclusion. But then in two thousand seventeen, when we implemented the FR stat, um, that seemed to also go uh, without a lot of concern that was expressed. And indeed, I was able to talk with someone after a case was done. And they said, oh, yeah, we liked it because it actually provided an empirical foundation. So we didn't need to worry too much about challenges to the subjectivity to it. But I also would say that we implemented the FR stat in a very delicate way that discretized the output of the FR stat from the personal judgment and the expert opinion of the analyst. And we did that in a very careful way that... um That we can talk a a little bit about in the end and how do we introduce algorithmic systems into the mix as well and so i think the way we did that also was was from a managing risk perspective as well as we were to as we were moving forward with introducing a novel technology there so overall we didn't in the military justice system we did not experience a level of of challenge that we were thinking we were doing which made us then believe that i think we were actually anticipate we were deflecting the challenges that we ourselves had in the fingerprint community onto what we believed we were going to get from the attorneys. Now, that's not necessarily to say that it's going to be, that can be generalizable across the board right. and in the civilian sector as well. I think we're we're certainly going to see some challenge, but I don't think that we're going to see the level of challenge and resistance from the other stakeholders as we in, ourselves are imposing within our own community and the aversion to this.
1: Yeah, that, that sounds very fair, and I think you're you're spot on.
0: The questions were kind of split up between you talk of probabilistic language, that type of conclusions, and uh, you know, versus categorical, uh, and then another set of questions on the use of algorithms. And uh, so I want to kind of move to that second set of questions uh, a little bit. And questions kind of involved uh, the role that these algorithms uh, should play in forensic sciences and in the court. how we can trust the code that is at the heart of these algorithms, Uh, especially another question in uh, relation to artificial intelligence, machine learning methods, where that information isn't really visible to even the developers, how regulation of these algorithms uh, should be uh, proposed or instituted, and then what uh, what challenges uh, are the pattern evidence disciplines facing in the use of these uh, these algorithms. And my kind of initial thought is that it, it's kind of hard to, to say or to tell how things are going to move once this, you know, becomes more widely used because some of the statements, you know, from the respondents here, i uh, don't just kind of hint or suggest that they don't fully understand what's you know, what these things are going to be doing or how they're going to work. In the future, or how even uh, algorithms are currently used in just a generic Aphis type of system, uh, but you know part of that is is there's nothing there that exists that we can point to and train on and and uh, you provide specific details because there's there's not much out that's specific yet that's you know wide, used widespread. But what are, what are some of your initial
2: takeaways, uh, Henry, on um, on this set of questions? You, I think you hit a, you did very well to summarize that section as well, and you hit the the issue dead on. Looking at this issue, you might consider that the topic of probabilistic reporting and categorical reporting would be discrete from from the the use and implementation of algorithmic systems, and indeed they are two two discrete two separate topics, but they're jointly related. And the reason I say that is because if we're having if there seems to be that probabilistic reporting is preferable from a scientific perspective over categorical reporting for the reasons we just chatted about and that are outlined in the paper. There is also a, a desire that probabilistic reporting methods have some sort of empirical foundation to them, especially if you're going to report a numerical quantity. Now, how do you get to a numerical quantity? You have to do so with some sort of probabilistic model, and a computational algorithm is often the means to, towards such an end. And so now we have this other dimension that we have to consider is how do we even use probabilistic or computational algorithms in general? What are the benefits of these systems? What are the limitations or the risks of these systems? And how can they cohabitate with human experts? But more importantly, what is the legal system? From the perspective of a prosecutor, from the perspective of a defense attorney and the perspective of a judge, how are they going to look at some of these systems? And what was most interesting here, and this is something that in our other paper that I referenced entitled The Implementation of Algorithms in Pattern and Impression Evidence Domains, what we realized is that there is actually some real issues in terms of the admissibility of these systems, both in terms of rule of evidence, but more importantly, from a constitutional dimension. So, for example, and this is why the question about machine learning and artificial intelligence was so relevant here, because that, as a scientist, people always say, well, look, we have so much technological capacity and pointing to machine learning capabilities and artificial intelligence basis. And from a scientific perspective, all we tend to care about is what gives us? What solution gives us better performance. And indeed, we will often see better performance from an AIML approach, artificial intelligence slash machine learning. But the problem is is now, is it legally admissible? Right. Even if we have some sort of validation and there's concerns over whether we can fully validate these systems, but even if we have, let's just pretend we have an adequate validation and we can empirically demonstrate this is the performance of the technology and we implement it. Now we have to think about, does a defendant in the American criminal justice system, does the defendant have the opportunity and the means to challenge the evidence against them?
1: To confront, specifically confront—that's that's the that's the the due process clause right there.
2: Exactly, two issues are, are specifically pointed out, and that is due, the constitutional right to due process and the confrontation and they they are a bit in, in, uh, um, related to one another. If you fail to have the ability to adequately confront the evidence to uh, uh, challenge the evidence against you, then your due process is also violated as well as your confrontation so that is a question now is how do we whether it's artificial whether it's A I M L based or not, how does a defendant confront an algorithmic system right. And it's going to have different different consider implications if it is a straight coded algorithm with rules and out and, and formula that we can show to the person than if it's based in AIML.
1: Yeah, and your your interviews went right to the heart of this. It all comes down to the source code. Can the source code be released? And 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 no manufacturer that you know is a private sector manufacturer is going to want to release their source code. And 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 you can give a little perspective on this, Henry, from your your past life if you will you've seen this before in the the toxicology uh, the breathalyzer and toxalyzer mm-hmm. region because I, I, if i recall you've done some of that um uh work uh, work as well where you've gotten involved in source code and computational issues in the toxicology arena
2: correct yeah so so many years ago um In the toxicology arena, specifically with estimating blood alcohol in a retrograde or anterograde estimations, um, toxicologists will rely on on a formula referred to as a Widmark formula, and they often do that computation by hand. Um, There have been several developments or improvements to that algorithm, and so uh, you know, what are we looking at? Almost 10, 15 years ago, now I got involved with with designing and and developing a a a computer software program that allows for all of these different algorithms to be. or formulas, I should say, to be integrated together. On that, I watched the source code challenges, but I did not directly get involved in the source code challenges. But fortunately in that, in the computational system that we had developed, everything was publicly accessible and we were we were fine dealing with that one. But it is indeed an experience that I've had that sh- certainly shaped my perspective moving into the onto the source code disclosure of Of fingerprint related algorithms, for example. But I will say Glenn and Eric that one one thing that really was most interesting to me is that we hear a lot of issues that, you know, demanding the disclosure of source code uh, by defense litigators, and then Vendors not being willing to disclose the source code and then prosecutors kind of throwing up their arms and saying we cannot compel the vendor at third party to 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 disclose the source code. And it just creates all of these legal challenges. We're seeing this play out in in probabilistic genotyping. And interestingly, what we're also seeing is that judges are tending, although there's a shift happening right now, but historically, judges have tended to um, to side with the trade secret. with, with claims of trace secrecy as a way of preventing disclosure of source code, we're starting to see a shift slowly moving towards more so working to compel this. But what was interesting to me is the the judges that participated in this, this paper, this this research, the federal judges in particular, they oversee criminal and civil cases. Exactly. They might have a criminal case one day and then a civil case the other day. Exactly. And what was interesting is that both both of these judges kind of thought it to be laughable. They said, "No, that whole trade secrecy issue in the civil in civil law, right. we have an entire we have so much years of experience in dealing with this, and we have never once seen an issue when there has been a compelled for the disclosure of the source code." And they were very. Um, inflexible with seeing the alternative of how these other judges have sided with trade secrecy they said that that is no there's no place for algorithms that we cannot have the opportunity to see the what's under the hood and the opportunity to challenge it what's under the hood. There's no place for that in our criminal justice system. And so it's interesting to see that there is very much a different perspectives, even with the judicial circles on this issue.
1: Yeah, for, for sure. sure. I don't know if listeners realize, I mean, I, and or what your judges talked about, you know, they have a tool called, it's Latin, in, in camera, which means that you can basically present and, and make available things like source code, but only within the the, the confines of the, of the case. In other words, it can't be disclosed outside of the case, but both parties can get access to this and can peek under the hood. They just can't share that outside of the court case. And it's a tool that's been used in civil cases for a long time uh, to be able to give a- access to both sides for the purpose of litigation.
0: I, I don't know, guys, I, for for the disclosure of, of basically a source code, the whole concept of source code, it, you know, especially it kind of comes from, you know, some like breath alcohol or, or DNA, where it's at least relatively simpler in concept. And but what, for what we're going to be dealing with here for friction ridge algorithms that will actually generate some sort of likelihood ratio, or using an algorithm to comp- compute this in some in some manner, whatever that ends up looking like, the source code is either going to be. Never disclosed, or not even technically source code. It's, it's just even that kind of seems like a an inadequate term for for what's there. Uh, it, it'll just be never disclosed. The the company just will not even begin to consider the possibility, or if the company would consider it, their algorithm isn't worth uh, anything. So we shouldn't even be bothered using it anyway.
2: I think that's the extreme perspective that's been raised.
0: You know the then um, the challenge comes to okay, how do how can we then uh, what validation methods can be utilized to to demonstrate the that this algorithm is fit for purpose and is fair and is uh, complete and uh, you know it minimizes all the problems and maximizes all the benefits. Again, part of your question is another real heart of it. There's also nothing to to release in some uh, instances because it's based on this uh, AI or machine learning kind of concept. And then a lot of the data is, or the way the algorithm works is based on, you know, what the algorithm has been trained on. So it can be here is a demonstration that it's been trained on a unbiased set of, uh, of data, but you know, what's underlying it, the actual, you know, software algorithm that It's just, it's there's just no way we 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 shouldn't kind of expect that to change. And I I would be extremely shocked if good algorithms were uh, have gotten to the point where they would be disclosed to
2: defense or really anyone in the system. Correct. I think you ask a really important question, and that is, if we let's let's just let's just pretend that the source code is the is the holy grail. That disclosure of the source code is is what's necessary to enable review, and even that is still controversial because some argue you can disclose the source code but then you have to have the expertise to really understand and make make reasonable inferences and interpret what is underlying that source code so then what's also then and then in the context of machine learning you don't really have a human readable source code there so what do you do is all machine learning and artificial intelligence suddenly excluded on that basis well not necessarily then the next best thing you could consider is at the very least we have to have a have transparency into the design of the system. We may not necessarily have the line-by-line source code, but we need to have transparency in exactly how the system was designed, how the system operates conceptually. Think of it kind of like a, a patent application for a new widget. In the patent application, you have to be very clear about what is the conceptual design underlying this, this proposed invention. And in an analogous way, I think that's how we could look at it from the framework of from, from computational algorithms is how is the system designed, how was it trained, and then accessibility to the training data for that, that you just mentioned. Knowing how machine learning algorithms generally work, then you could have some sort of description underlying how the machine learning algorithm was trained and the data used to train it, and then we can consider the robustness of the training data set and the the methods used to train the algorithm and so forth like that. And then you'll also be able to compare what does the test data set look like and, and then consider to what extent is the circumstances in the present case represented by that validation data. The challenge with validation, and I'm using air quotes here that you can't see, is that that's actually seemingly a simple concept. Is it valid or not? But it's actually a more complicated question because we have to consider what are the circumstances for which the system will perform as expected. And for something to be valid, we have to be very clear about what are the expected, what are the, what is the criteria for what we would consider to be acceptable performance and also have very clear understanding of what are the boundaries upon which acceptable performance can be achieved. If you have a black box system or or a, or a computational algorithm that you don't understand exactly what's going on under the hood, there is a concern that can you actually fully validate that system? Meaning, can you actually characterize all of the boundary conditions for which we know we're going to get an acceptable result or not? So even that concept of validation in these issues becomes complicated. Now, what I hope to not for listeners to interpret from this interview... I hope that we are talking about a lot of challenges with with moving in this, un, this largely unchartered territories. That's not to say that we should not move in that direction. The issue is that we have to be very uh, intentional and thoughtful about how we move in that direction and that's the lesson, and that's the, the, the moral behind all of this research here not to not move in that direction, but simply to lay the foundation for how we can navigate this more effectively.
0: One of those responses from the, one of the defense attorney. It keeps just replaying in my head. So I want to see if you have a better understanding of exactly kind of what their what their concern is here. Um, first, when algorithms replicate the ability of human examiners, then the defense attorney was much more comfortable with the use of an algorithm. But there's concern that inevitably they will be used in the criminal justice system in a role that far exceeds what I'm calling for. I'm being the, the speaker, the defense attorney there.
2: mm mm-hmm.
0: You know, in my view, that you know the potential for these algorithms, this this type of you know likelihood ratio uh, or base factor approach, you know, has a lot of potential to you know, improve the field, improve the conclusions above what the examiner can do, uh, or the, it, or even more so that the combination of the human uh, expertise and the and the, the machine, the algorithm combined can produce a better result together than either could do separately. But I, I guess, uh, did you get a feel for what what type of exceeding was was meant here? Like what, what other uses there's concern over?
2: Yes. So you're exactly right. I think that was an, what that was getting at, if I recall correctly, the context behind that. Is very similar to what we just chatted about in terms of the concerns over disclosure of source code and whether there's whether there's the opportunity to really understand how the algorithm is operating. Um, and so, what the what is being expressed by that defense attorney participant is is that if we have an algorithm that is simply that merely replicates the behaviors and activities of what a human already could normally do or we've at least trusted them to do in the past. And they do it at increased um, efficiency and increased overall effectiveness and effectiveness being several things could be related there. Like you could be more, you know, with better performance in terms of effectiveness with better consistency in terms of perfect uh, effectiveness and so forth. So if it can be more efficient and more effective, Then they're willing, they're much more comfortable relying on that algorithmic system because they can work with this human expert to describe how that algorithm is working. What are the tasks that the algorithm is doing to come to the result? And in doing so, that sheds light on how the algorithm is working, the underlying design of the system. Now, the concern that this participant had, and I think it was shared across some others as well, is what if we have an algorithmic system? that is is presented as having this capability that human experts don't have. And in that situation, the human expert can't describe what is actually, generally speaking, what is actually occurring under the, under the hood. The risk that we have in that situation is that the algorithm becomes, the, the, the evidence presented against the defendant is solely based on the algorithm and no one can explain how it came to that output. And so, having an algorithm that replicates the tasks of what a humans would normally do or we trust humans to do, they can describe generally speaking what the algorithm is doing. but having an algorithm that that has the cap proposed to have the capability to do something that humans can't otherwise do, that is where it becomes um, much more nebulous and much more concerning because we are relying so heavily only on that algorithm interesting. let me take you a step back, and I will say that um there are that that discussion in that interview with that participant so it we did not present a single specific algorithm as the basis for the conversation and so these these are these participants have had experience with a number of different types of algorithms um within the criminal justice system some you know some specifically to forensic applications such as probabilistic genotyping software and and so forth um but there's also a number of other algorithms that the criminal justice system relies upon. And there's one in particular that, for example, that I think th- this participant was also kind of didn't specifically reference, but at the very outset kind of described of having experience dealing with. And that is a, an algorithm that can be installed within a city and the algorithm can detect Um, acoustics and identify that acoustic as a gunshot and then geolocate where in the city that gunshot is coming from and then automatically prompt police to go there for predictive policing. And so you saw some concern about, we didn't talk about it a lot in this article because it was, um, we wanted to keep the scope specific to algorithms for forensic science, for criminal justice, for court purposes, I should say, Um, but we also can't discount the fact that many of the participants have experience with algorithms in forensic science and outside of forensic science as well. And so I think that was a loose reference, also, of of concern over algorithms in general, because we can't necessarily take a human and that Schumann have very good, effective performance at listening to acoustics and then and then single handedly identifying and geolocating where. Um, a gunshot specifically came from as opposed to a vehicle backfire or construction equipment and so f- or firecrackers or so forth like that. So I think although it not explicitly stated this participant, I think in the back of that participant's mind, some of that was went into play when the participant said, I'm concerned about reliance on algorithms where we don't which exceeds our capability in general. And it and it's basically, we just push a button and we get a magic result and we become overly reliant on that result without truly understanding how that system operates.
0: And I, I can understand some of those concerns, but there also seems to be implicit in there a, a, a really a, a hard limit on, you know, we, we want to, to draw the line and never let the technology get better than than the human examiner operating alone. And that's, I mean, I'm not sure if that's exactly what you know the opinion that someone has, but you know, it sounds like that's uh, you know that's that's potentially you know a limit that wants to be that someone wants to impose, and and that's that sounds concerning too. I
2: think the I think they're I think all stakeholders wanted a a better and more effective criminal justice system and more effective and and higher performance overall. I think they're just looking at it from a legal perspective of. We need to have to to be able to trust the system and trust, trusting these systems extends beyond simply looking at a sheet of paper and looking at the output performance of the system. We need to have some understanding of what's going on in between that. And and if we don't have that understanding, if it's if the system is able to do something that. I, I think that's that's part of the issue, which is what we chatted a little bit about—the disclosure of source code and the fund, fundamental design of the system. The other concern that's related to this is: Will practitioners potentially use the system operationally and push the limits of the system beyond what has been established in the validation? and so i'm going to make up a simplistic example this is not to suggest that it's actually happening but let's let's it's just an easy example that we can all relate to let's say we have a probabilistic genotyping software that's able to distinguish you know two three person mixtures and and although it might take a long time a human can also do that computation it just is you know, prone to potential error in the computation or may take a long time to do so. But then what if we have a system that proposes the ability to, and I'm going to say something egregiously high, uh, differentiate between 15 different people in a mixture, uh, and no human has the capacity to do that. We are left we are left with no choice except to trust the output of that system. And that becomes uh, of, of concern to the defense litigator in particular.
0: All right. So uh, last kind of main thing here, Henry. Uh... In, in looking through this whole section on algorithms or, or all the different questions to these different groups on algorithms, one one thing I, I didn't really see come up is is how a very similar type of algorithm is already being used uh, in the criminal justice system, in you know, friction-ridge comparisons and going to court, and, and that's APHIS searching. Right? A lot of the the questions and the challenges. Associated with the with these uh, these algorithms in it for a potential future system that would generate some sort of likelihood ratio or other probabilistic number to be associated with the ID, you could be argued that the same questions or challenges could be raised for an APHIS system, right? Uh, everything from the "quote unquote" source code to the AI uh, machine learning uh, question, uh, really on down the line, and is. Now, in, in the past, at least, uh, there's been some agencies that have taken the approach where APHIS is just the searching tool and the quote-unquote real comparison happens external to APHIS. Is, is that the reason why, is that distinction, you know, the reason why that discussion didn't happen? Or what do you think is at the heart of that?
2: Yes, that that was primarily the reason that we did not explicitly come up with perspectives about APHA systems in general, because it's about how APHA systems are currently used operationally. Right now, APHA systems assist with the comparison, making the comparison more efficient. But the actual evaluation of the evidence, as APHA systems are used today, is based on this human expertise. Without Algorithmic intervention. Now, if AFIS systems were to then take a more prominent role in the evaluation of the evidence, we very much would see these very same concerns be raised here. So, the the scope of this discussion was more about the use of computational algorithms as it relates to the evaluation and potential in reporting of the of of the of the evidence itself.
0: Hmm. Yeah, you know, I don't. I'm not sure the, that distinction. You know, you completely holds right that that. Uh... The, these same questions have the potential to be raised even for AFIS systems, uh, and you know I think in the long run the answer is going to be the same for both. That that it is a a validation testing showing it's it's fit for purpose under different scenarios, and and its strengths and weaknesses you know across the board that really fits in as the answer for for both
2: and. Let, let me. Ask. So you mentioned validation fit for purpose. I think I'd, I'd like to. I think you hit right on it. The the question is: Is Aphis systems have been accepted to be valid for their intended purpose of efficiently searching and retrieving against a brass database, very similar fingerprints. And if there is a known mate within the database, we validate that the known mate, ba- the known mate in the database occurs high on the candidate list. Is is eval? Is is determined to be similar by the algorithm, by the similarity algorithm in the APHIS system, for example. And we validate that the APHIS system works for its intended purpose of ranking prints by pr- producing the known source in the database at the top or near the top of that candidate list for an expert to then detect and then for- perform a full-fledged, full-on comparison and evalu- evaluation against. So I'm not s- not saying that APHIS systems should not be validated. I think that the subtlety is about what is the intended purpose of the algorithm in the broader examination schema. And you bring up a very good point there. And so some of these issues that we're going to have with the use of algorithms, we cannot f- imp- – we'll have different implications if the algorithms have different intended purposes within the broader examination schema. And this is where if we shift back over to the other paper that I mentioned that I know we didn't discuss here, but entitled The Implementation of Algorithms and Pattern Impression Evidence, a Responsible and Practical Roadmap, also published in Forensic Science International Synergy, this was largely a literature review of of the different perspectives. But in that paper, we did propose that we will have different criteria for validation and we will have different implications to the admissibility of these algorithms dependent on where and how they're used operationally. And that indeed, right. there are many different ways algorithms in general can be used within friction ridge examination. For example, it could be applied like an APHIS system is as during the comparison phase. It can be applied as a, uh, during the analysis phase for auto detection of features, it can be applied in the analysis phase for automatic quality mapping. We can have an APHIS algorithm, which typically falls in the comparison phase, and then we can have some sort of probabilistic model that will um, support the evaluation of the evidence in the evaluation phase of the the examination methodology. And there's gonna be different implications in terms of the validation and in terms of the potential admissibility issues Based on the purpose for which those algorithms play within that broader schema.
0: No, good point. That, and I, I think overall, what I've seen is uh, is agent, law enforcement agencies or, or government agencies that uh, run and operate an AFIS system becoming more interested in that validation step uh, of, of ensuring that, for the exact purpose that the the AFIS system is being used, that it is uh, it works correctly and. And understanding the limits of, of how far that that can go, because it's I mean it, that that technology is pushing forward and expanding the use of the tool. It's no longer simply just a here's a list of, of a
2: ranked list of candidates. Absolutely. I, Al, Aphis algorithms have incredible capacity, and I have my utmost confidence that they could serve as a as a viable foundation for an other a, a completely new set of, of algorithms. For different purposes within the friction ridge examination schema. So, AFA systems have incredible capacity for, for searching and com- automatically comparing against large candidates. Now, an algorithm that has been validated for that purpose, as an AFA system currently plays, does not necessarily mean that it's also valid, validated for assessing the mer- numerical weight of evidence for example right. as a probabilistic model applied for in the evaluation phase of the schema now can we take an Aphis algorithm and per- perhaps adapt it for such purpose i strongly believe so but we'd have to actually see it done and then and then assess the performance of the system but in doing so we also have to have a, a conversation within our community about what is the acceptable criteria for a for an algorithm to be considered quote valid for such purpose. And we have to also be willing to accept some sort of risk of error there because no algorithm is going to be imperfect. Whereas, and that risk is what's also key here is because we are willing to accept more risk for an algorithm applied for, for increasing our searching capability uh, in terms of its potential to maybe miss a print in that capacity, because we know the alternative of manually searching against millions of fingerprints is not a practical solution either. So right. we're, it increases our capacity, but it still has some risks there. But if we then, but then we have to, so we've accepted that, that risk of error in that context. Now we have to have a conversation about are we willing, what the level of error are we willing to accept when an algorithm is applied for Measuring and expressing the n- the numerical weight of evidence as an example, when an algorithm is applied d- during the evaluation phase of the examination methodology and forms the basis of the conclusion that's reported, we might have a much lower tolerance for risk in that situation compared to the alternative and so the intended purpose is a a, a general term that we use a lot when we talk about validation of a system, but it's it very much has real implications of 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 The acceptable performance, the performance we're willing to accept and the risk we're willing to accept based on how that algorithm is to be applied operationally and for what purpose.
0: Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. That that whatever task that is, if it's, you know, from, you know, uh, auto encoding, making an automated decision, like a reverse, a reverse no hit, um, or just presenting the list of candidates back, displaying a, a set of of mated minutia, uh, all the way through, you know, basing different conclusions or quality assurance steps on the score, and then you know the kind of the furthest level of actually doing a proper likelihood ratio base factor type of calculation. You know, whatever you know, each step of that for what purpose it's being used for needs to be validated uh, individually for that specific purpose.
2: That That's exactly right now i want to elaborate on on one piece of what you just mentioned. We can take an alg- an Aphis algorithm in its current design and we could probably use the numerical scores from that aphis and validate that those score um, those scores provide some sort of quality assurance. We can use the Aphis algorithm as a quality control once we once we have established that's the intent behind what we want to use it for so then that, that same algorithm serves two purposes one to enable us to be more efficient with our comparison task, And then secondly, it enables us to apply an algorithm for a quality control and provide a numerical, some sort of numerical and, and, and empirical foundation to augment the subjective conclusion we might draw from the evidence there. Now, I, distinguish, I say the quality control importantly, because that's exactly where we can have one algorithm be applied after the expert forms their opinion and the purpose it serves as a quality control with some sort of empirical foundation to it or we can have an evidence uh, i'm sorry an algorithm be applied prior to the expert forming their 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 conclusion and that output of that algorithm is one of either the predominant factor or one of many factors that is taken into account by the expert in forming the evaluation of the evidence and there's going to those are there's going to be very different implications when one is applied after the fact versus be, after the ex- expert forms their opinion versus beforehand and we and and it's gonna we could have one algorithm that could be validated for as a quality control, but not necessarily validated as a model that's applied before the expert forms their conclusion. Now I know I'm getting really deep into the details there, but that's why we need to have clarity around what is the intended purpose of the algorithm, and in other words, what is the role and responsibilities but of that algorithm compared to this human expert, and when is it applied? in the broader examination schema, because that will affect what level of performance we're willing, we, we desire to consider it valid.
0: And if we see a potential for that tool to be expanded into some sort of new use, what validation needs to be done for that new use case to, to, you know, um, to uh, you'll alleviate those concerns that the defense expert you know, mentioned about you know, the, the expanded
2: or... Um, exactly. You're exactly right.
0: The, the expanded the expanded use beyond what it was initially designed for. Uh, yes. So, not not saying all right. Here's what it's initially designed for. There's that's the end of the line. But if there's potential to go for, forward from that, just making sure that the uh, you know the proper steps and tests and validations are completed along that route
2: you're right you're you're exactly right making sure, making sure that we use a system within the bounds of what it has been validated for and if we intend to uh have a desire to apply it beyond those bounds we need to validate it for such scope of purpose for such intended purpose before we actually push it validation is not a something that's done once and is never done a, and, and 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 gets overly generalized for the entire any type of use for the system validation is within bounded scope and, making, and we need to make sure that we don't apply the algorithm or any method for that matter beyond the scope of what has already been validated for.
0: All right, well, Henry, thank you so much for joining us again uh, to talk about this paper. And you, a couple of times you mentioned the other paper that you and Christoph have recently published. So I wanted to make sure to mention that as well. Uh, the full title being Implementation of Algorithms in Pattern and Impression Evidence, a Responsible and Practical Roadmap. Uh, also in Forensic Science International Synergy, uh, but published in 2021. Uh, so uh, both of them are pretty easy to find. We'll try to include links in the the, uh, the episode notes, uh, and both being uh, open source, so you know a lot
1: easier. You don't yeah. have to go through the paywall at Sevier or whoever to uh, to get the paper. Indeed. Yeah, thanks, Henry. It was a uh, great discussing this paper with you. Thanks for taking time out from your busy schedule in Stockholm. Um, make sure you get some great uh, Swedish food and try the Ludafisk when you're there.
2: <laughs> I sure will. thanks, thanks so much, Glenn and Eric's been a, it's been quite a pleasure, and I appreciate the invitation to come on.
0: But uh, yeah, again, thank you so much for joining us and and you know very uh, glad to uh, to talk through all this. A lot of really interesting perspectives. it's a It's a longer paper, but there's so many good quotes in here. Uh, definitely encourage everyone listening to get a copy and read through it because uh, it can you know really give that just direct perspective um, of these different stakeholders and uh, I think can overall help us better communicate with the you know kind of the, the relevant stakeholder next to your
2: lab uh, that would probably have a very similar uh, viewpoint. That's exactly right. Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation to to come on the podcast. Of course, it's is quite honored to to receive the invitation and <laughs> and um, and I you know ultimately I think that the value of this paper is to to we have to lay a foundation and make sure that all stakeholder perspectives are are represented because that's the only way we're going to have an effective um solution here and i think we need to be respectful of the different perspectives even if we personally in the the role that we play in the criminal justice system even if we don't necessarily agree with that perspective i think we have to take a holistic viewpoint and and we're going to be more effective in our journey forward towards computational systems and probabilistic models in fingerprint examination but we have to just kind of take a step back first and then look across the board and then think about how can I account for all of these different perspectives, even if they seem to contradict one another.
0: Well, and to recognize, okay, well, if, if that's a concern, even though I, if I don't think it's a valid concern, I, I recognize that that is your concern, and now I can do something about it. I can communicate with you about uh, and and provide uh, evidence or support that will you know help lessen that concern or or put it into the context of what's going on overall, or or. or or you know, address it and however it needs to be addressed. You're exactly right. All right. Well, if you guys have any questions for, uh, for me or Glenn, uh, either on this topic or on anything else that we talk about on the show, as always, you can email us, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at com. We've got our website up, double with uh, your merchandise and links to old episodes uh, and, and a bunch of stuff like that. Uh, by the time this airs, I uh, so also want to mention that our companion video where Glenn and I walk through the Cowan's comparisons uh, should be up, uh, but that's going to be on Patreon only. So you'll have to uh, log into your Patreon account, uh, go through, find that, uh, that, that episode, and then click on the link to open up the video. The opinions expressed on the show are those of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they work for. And with that, uh, talk to you guys later and have a good week. Bye. Thank you.